0: Our talk this afternoon is titled, I'm Going Back. I'm going back. John Wesley preached his last sermon. John Wesley is one of the founders of the Methodist movement. And he preached his last sermon on February 17, 1791 in Lambeth on the text, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. During the last days of his illness, he often repeated words from one of his brother's hymns. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. John Wesley died on March 2nd, 1791. Luke fifteen seven. all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. We are going to go through something in Genesis chapter 3 today that I believe you have probably never seen before. Somebody may correct me, but so far as I've gone around doing this series, nobody has told me that they've seen it before. And I believe it changes everything about how we read the story right there from the beginning. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. John 4, 39. Many from that city believed because of the word of the woman who testified. May we know our own gospel story, and may we commit to telling it. Actually, I want to add this, um, because Beth was talking about next year. I want to tell you this. um, did you know only 2% of Christians invite anybody to church in a given year? But we believe it. <laughs> 98% of us will never invite another person to church in a given year. And here, You wanna know something that's really, really sad? It is some 85% of people who say they would go to church if someone just invited them. God is invisible, and he's always chosen to interact with us invisibly because he chooses to be seen in his people. When the world cries out, where is God? That is not an indictment on God. That is an indictment on the church. I hope you will take Beth up on what she said, and I hope you will join the 2% of Christians who invite somebody to church in a given year. You have a whole year to plan it. I hope you will take her up on that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, I'm going to let my words be few, Lord, but I just pray that the gospel is preached this afternoon. I pray that you will speak and that the picture that we understand of who you are is so beautiful that we will each commit to telling somebody the story. May we tell the story, and many in the city believed because of the word of the woman who testified. May we, Lord, may every single woman here stand at the well and tell the story. In your name, amen. 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 All right, our talk today is titled, I'm Going Back. I'm going back. We're going to go to Genesis 3, 20 through 24. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we will go back and go through it line by line. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard. This is how I read it. Flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Don't you dare cross me. Or else you're out of here. That's how I read it. There's something really beautiful right here that you probably have never seen before. Let's go back to the text. Genesis 3:20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. The man said, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man." That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Before, I want to make this point, before sin, the, the, the practice of naming somebody is also in scripture an expression of superiority, right? I want to make very clear, here before sin, Adam doesn't name her. There is no superiority, All he does is say she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The word woman just means to be taken out of man. Adam is simply restating that which God has already done. The Hebrew word for this term is isha, and its translation is literally to be taken out of man. So before sin, we see no expression of superiority. By the way, the word woman was created to describe essentially man with a womb. And that is why in scripture often we'll read it and women will say, but I don't see how come it's always directed to the men because all people are men. Some are just men with wombs, womb man. All people are humans, right? In the Hebrew context, most words were masculine because all people were men. Some were just men with wombs, In English, so here's the thing about translations. We miss a lot in scripture due to the translations. I'm going to show you how this works in a second. Um, And so we try to create a word to say the same thing. Like, for example, in the Greek, there's like six or seven different ways of saying love. In English, there's only one. You tell me if we've lost something in the translation. When you have one word to convey seven different ideas, you're going to lose something in the translation. And that's what's happened throughout scripture. We lose things because we don't have the same language for the words. By the way, however many words you have, in, in, however many words you have, show how much emphasis your culture places on that thing. In English, we have one. How many in Spanish to say love? Two. Right? More. In Greek, it's like six or seven. Um, So in English, we would say, I miss you. Right? That has a connotation to it. If your man sent you a text right now that said, I miss you, you'd say, cute. (laughs) That's really sweet. Thank you. (laughs) It's really sweet. Right? I miss you. In French, they would say, tu me manques. Tu me manques. You want to know the difference? You are missing from me. You you tell me what would be different if your husband sent you a text right now that said you are missing from me. There is a world of difference between I miss you and you are missing from me. We can say, oh, these are the same words, but it's not, and a lot of it gets lost in the translation. We lose much in the translation of scripture, which is what has happened to women after centuries of a male-dominated culture. So because men are in control for a long time of the scriptures, they just read it differently. There's no shade. I'm not throwing shade in that. It's just we all typically see things from our own vantage point or our own experiences, and we read those things into the text. People often reference Paul's letters to Timothy as proof that women shouldn't speak in church. It says, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. When we read this in a patriarchal society, or culture. We don't even question it. Sounds right. Fits with what I've been told my whole life. Fits with the story. Fits with the narrative. Hold on. Paul and Timothy were extremely close. They planted churches together. Timothy actually co-authors parts of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon. If it was Paul's usual practice to only allow men to speak and lead, why in the world would he have to send a letter to Timothy to remind him of something that they practiced all the time? It must be that there's something that goes without saying in the text. And remember, as we go through scripture, often we're reading letters. We're reading one half of a conversation, right? We're only seeing what Paul has said. We have no idea what Timothy has said to Paul, which now Paul is responding to. A really great book. Everybody should read in this room. It is free on Audible. Please read it. It is called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. It changed a lot for me um, about how I approach scripture. Uh, Just one really basic element is in the Western culture, everything is about the individual. And we read that into the text right we say i in the temple of god actually that's not what the text says paul says don't you know that all of you together are the temple of god and the spirit of god lives in you don't you know when all of you get together you become the temple of god and now the spirit of god can walk and breathe and live through you that's not how westerners read the text jesus somebody's bubbles going to be Um, very confused right now. But Jesus was not a white man. (laughs) Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew, which is a very different cultural context by which we, now I'm American, which I would read the same texts, right? And that changes some of the messaging that we would read. And that's what we've done to women If Paul's instructions on a woman or on women in some of these rare verses was universal, it seems odd that Timothy would need reminding of something that him and Paul, as they planted churches together, would have talked about all the time. It makes much more sense that something unique was happening in these specific churches. What do we know about Ephesus? The church Timothy is receiving instruction from Paul at. It was the epicenter of the major female deity temple. We know this because of Ephesus. Acts 19, through 23 through 41. It had an all-female priesthood and taught that Eve came before Adam and saw females as of holders of special divine wisdom. And Paul says they are ruining the gospel. Tell them to be quiet. That's not the gospel. And they're telling you the wrong story. Just tell them to be quiet. He's giving instructions for a specific church in a specific context at a specific time. Not all of these things are universal commands. Often in Scripture, we see God only in terms of a malview view because that is for years and years who controlled the Scriptures. But why are there multiple times in Scripture that God, I bet you you've never even noticed it before. That's how much we read our own culture into the text. Did you know that there are multiple times in Scripture that God talks about himself, God is genderless, but himself, In a female language, it is that man and woman together become the image of God. One half is not the whole picture. Man and woman together become the image of God. If you don't believe me, because I see some of you like, I don't know, (laughs) she's taking some liberties. It's in the text. It's in the text. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who what? God says, I gave birth to you. God says, and this is important. There are, I have, I have worked with students who say, you don't understand, I have been molested by every male I ever knew. The, even talking about God as a father is painful. And so I need women to hear me. God is not just a father, he is a father, but he is also your mother. God is not just our father, he is also our mother. And scripture affirms this. Deuteronomy 32.18 shows God as a father and a mother. Both masculine and feminine language are used. Job says, who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? God says, I have a womb. Isaiah 42, 14, I groan like what? I groan like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Hosea 13, 8, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Cubs. Representation matters, and just like research shows minorities and women have to see themselves represented in fields like STEM to believe that they can work in them, Christian women have to see representation of themselves in Scripture and God to be able to believe that they, too, are image-bearers of Christ. Ezer, he made you and he called you Ezer. The crowning jewel, well, Sabbath is the crowning jewel of creation, but he made you and he called you easier. He says, here's the finishing touch, because she will help make all things strong. Oh, that our daughters would be pillars, that they would help make things strong. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So after sin, Adam turns and he names her. This is an expression of superiority, but we're going to go back to it. Um, But he does name her, but I want to show you something really, really beautiful in the text. Eve in Hebrew is choa, and it means life. Something has happened here. They have just been told you will die. And Adam turns to Eve. And he says, I'm going to call you, Joah, life. There is a promise of restoration in the womb of the woman is hope. God has told them the plan of redemption. And He says, he will redeem us. And every time I call your name, life will be spoken into what feels dead right now. It's a really beautiful moment. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Genesis 3 21. God clothes them. Don't miss that in the text, by the way. What is the first thing God does? The first thing he does is he says, You know what? Right now you're naked. Tell me if this sounds like a daddy, a good daddy. You're naked. And you're ashamed. And so with my own hands, I will cover your shame. Remember, they had went and taken leaves and tried to clothe themselves. And God says, no, 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 no. With my hands, I will clothe you. There's several times in scripture that we see God use his hands. One is here. He well, when he forms man in the dirt, he also, um, when they're accusing the woman, he gets down in the dirt. He buries Moses's body, which is a very beautiful picture. God is with us in our birth, he is with us in our sin, like he was with that woman, and again, with his hands, he covers our shame. We serve a good. Good father, I the chief of sinners am, but Jesus died for me. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. There is mm, a, a tiny camp. I won't give it more credibility than it needs, but there's a tiny camp in Adventism that says that's rebuking the Trinity, saying that there's no such thing as a Trinity. My question is then, who is us? Right here in Genesis, God says, they have now become like one of, who's us? Who's us? Let's look at where we get our doctrine of the Trinity. Genesis 19, 24, God visits Sodom really quickly. This is important. Um, Even the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we tell that and we read an angry God into the text. He is mad and so judgment and hell and fire... What actually happens is God shows up to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to have to go look at Sodom. It's really, they are doing some awfully heinous things in Sodom, and I'm going to have to go look at it and deal with it. And Abraham says, if there are 50, I want you to hear what happens. Actually, it's, it's actually a picture of God, by the way. Abraham intercedes and intercedes and intercedes, and it's a picture of Jesus Christ. He says, if there are 50 righteous men in Sodom, will you spare it? God says, did you hear that? I will spare it for 50. God says, I will spare an entirely wicked city for 50 people. Abraham says, okay. And God starts walking. He says, wait, well, actually, Lord, will you spare it for 40? And God turns and he says, yeah, Abraham, I'll spare it for 40. And he turns to start to walk. And Abraham says, wait, 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 Lord, would you spare it for 30? And he says, I'll spare it for 30. Would you spare it for 20? I'll spare it for 20. And then Abraham says this. He says, would you spare it for 10. What Abraham is thinking is, if it is only my nephew Lot and his family, would you spare an entirely wicked city for one family? And what does God say? You tell me, Old Test- this is Old Testament God. It's the same God. I will spare an entirely wicked city on the sake of ten people. You tell me, is that a God that loves judgment and wrath and fire? You have added that. We have added that to the text. That's not the story. And you know the story. God goes. And what happens? In his mercy, he doesn't even find 10. And so in his mercy, he sends just Lot and his wife and his daughters out of the city. So he spares the righteous, right? It's a total twist on the story. But what happens in Genesis 24, it says this. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from who? How many? Two. One is on earth. And he says, it is really bad in Sodom. This is a viciously wicked city. By the way, I really like the way Ty Gibson um, illustrates this point. And he says, if you were to see a room full of people beating somebody up, would you stop it? That's what God is doing. He is allowing for, he is stopping what's happening, the wickedness in Sodom. He says, this can't go on. You're hurting my children. This has to stop. And so he calls out to God, and he just says, it's really bad. And so the Lord in heaven rains fire. We see two right here in Genesis. 1 John 5, 7, for there are how many? Are Belief in the Trinity is secure. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, which is Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. What do we know about the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'm gonna say this too. Ty Gibson says this really well. He says, God, God will win you with love or not at all. That's right. That is so good. God will win you through love or not at all. It is Satan who uses deception and division. God says, love and freedom. That's the covenant by which I stand by. Eve is tempted by Lucifer. Not at the promise of fruit, but at the fr- promise of power. What he says to her is, if you eat this, you will become like God. We need to be very careful when it comes to power. Oh, do we love power. And here's what I can tell you. Power, You, you read a little bit of neuroscience. Power actually Physically changes. The cognitive psychologist is saying yes. Power actually physically changes your brain. And I personally, this is not backed up by scripture. This is just my own interpretation. I personally believe this is why Jesus constantly dismissed himself from large crowds. He performs a miracle and he says, "Don't tell anyone." He's he's constantly protecting himself against all the power that is going to try to throw itself at him. And that's what they wanted. They wanted him to be king. They wanted earthly deliverance. And God says, my kingdom isn't of this world. It's an upside-down kingdom. I can deliver you, but it's not the power that you're seeking over one another. God's power is always attached to his love. Sometimes we think that God is holding out on us. Eve felt like, God, you must be holding out on us, and sometimes we feel the same. Did you know that the human eardrum can only hear sounds between 20 and 20,000 hertz? Anything outside of that range is inaudible. The human eye can only perceive light waves that are between 0.00007 and 0.00004 centimeters long. Did you know that? The only things we can see are things that fit within the spectrum. We tell God he's missing something we can't even see. (laughs) Mark Batterson puts it this way. He says, our visual range is the equivalent of one playing card in a stack of playing cards stretching halfway across the universe. A dog can hear four times better than human. God, you're missing something we cannot even hear. We cannot even see. There are so many things. Just you, Jose Rojas, my mentor, he says this all the time. He says, always thank God for the things you cannot see. There is a spiritual battle happening around us all the time. There are things that we cannot see. I was talking to a young lady today um, about what happens when prayer is delayed. If you go through the story of Daniel, one time Daniel prays, and the answer comes immediately. An angel shows up immediately, and it says, Daniel, God heard your prayer, and here I am. In the very next chapter, though, Daniel prays, and nothing happens. Same God. Same God. Same righteous man, the prayer gets delayed, and when the angel finally shows up, he says... Sorry, Daniel, I was delayed with the prince of Persia. Meaning there are evil forces that are organized for battle. And I, am, I had to have a confrontation. It says Michael had to come and release me so I could come to you. But the, and this is what it says in scripture. The second you prayed, the command went out. But there are evil. This is what it is. This is the great controversy that Ellen White even talks about. There is a battle of territories. And we get to reclaim. You guys, it is so, like, I can't believe we get to be a part of it. We get to literally reclaim territory for the kingdom of God. We get to walk in rooms and say, now, because I am here, a light is in this room. Jose Rojas says this. Why why do they say, um, be the salt of the earth? What is that reference? He says, Because salt makes people thirsty. When people are around you, they'll realize they're thirsty. They'll say, there's something in that woman. There's something in the word of that woman that I need. I am thirsty. If he be lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. David Ashrick puts it this way he says we aren't waiting on the world to get more godless it's godless we aren't waiting on the world to get more godless we're waiting on the church to get more godly this is in the scriptures revelation 320 In the letter to the seven churches, which, which theologians believe represent seven time periods in Earth's history, Smyrna, Ephesus, the same message gets sent out in Revelation 3. Essentially, it says God is he's talking to the churches, the time periods in Earth's history, and he says, I need you to hold fast. I need you to pray, and I need you to wait on me. I want you to hold on, I want you to pray, and I want you to wait on me. Every single church in earth's history waits on God. You want to know what happens when he talks to Laodicea, Revelation 3.20? The language changes. Laodicea, by the way, is the time period that scholars believe we are living in right now. The language changes. Revelation 3.20 says, and so I stand at the door and knock Every other church in history waits on God. When it gets to Laodicea, it is God who waits on the church. And so I stand at the door and knock. And here's a really scary verse in scripture. He says, is there anyone? Is there anyone who will open this door? Is there? I can do a lot with just 12 people law of the few. Is there anyone? We are not waiting on the world to get more godless. We are waiting on the church to get more godly. We are waiting for a generation of believers who actually believe the gospel. People know if I love something, I will tell everybody about it. I have a real thing. This probably isn't the audience for it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a real thing with Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. I have loved Taylor Swift for a very long time. And everybody who's ever sat in one of my classes know, oh, yeah, Dr. Day, she loves Taylor Swift, right? If you eat at a restaurant, do you tell everybody about how good that restaurant is? It's really weird because only 2% of Christians ever invite somebody to church in a given year. What do we believe in more? Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift? The Cheesecake Factory, Chick-fil-A. What do we believe? When you love something, you tend to tell people about it. But we say, we believe it. It changed my life. And then only 2% of us ever go back for our brother or our sister and say, come. We We are not waiting on the world to get more godless. We are waiting for a generation of believers to get more godly. And here you sit. God is timeless. It is not, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in Christ's incidences. It is not a coincidence that you sit here. He has a calling on your life. In the word of the woman is hope. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why did God not immediately kill Lucifer? Have you ever wondered that? I've had students that say that to me. I think I, I like the way, David Ashrick is a dear friend of mine, um, and I really like the way he says this. He says, people are a lot easier to kill than ideas. It's not the person, Lucifer, It was the ideas against God's character that God had to allow to be fully played out. And Ellen White says that the angels, when when we receive death, that makes sense to them because the wages of sin is death. It was only when Lucifer would go so far as to kill Christ that they said, oh, my goodness, he killed God. He killed a sinless lamb. And then they fully saw that what God had said was just all along. We deserve death. It is God who did not deserve it. And so in his ever-loving mercy, he lays his body out to redeem us to himself. It is an incredible story. It is an incredible story, and we have got to tell people. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Remorse is a blended emotion. This is coming from the work of Pluchik. You can look it up if you'd like. P L U T C H I K. P-L-U-T-C-H-I-K. And essentially, Plutchik says, this is communication theory, that there are primary emotions and there are blended emotions. And what this means is to create certain emotions, you have to blend together two other different emotions. Okay? So, for example, love is not a primary emotion, according to Plutchik. He says love is a blended emotion, the only way to create the emotion that we call love is to blend together two of the primary emotions. I have students that will sit in my office and they will say, Dr. Day, you don't understand. I love her. She just cheats on me. But I lo- you don't understand, I love her. Or I love him. He just forces me to do sexual things that I don't want to do with him but I love him, and that's why I'm with him. And I say, sweetie, what does love mean? Because the words we use matter. Do you want to know how we create the emotion that we call love? You're going to want to write this down. You're going to want to tell somebody. Love is a blended emotion. We create love when we blend together the two emotions of trust and joy. So I say, sweetie, say it again except use language appropriately because you cannot love, you cannot trust somebody who hurts you. You cannot trust somebody who is making you do sexual things you don't want to do with them. You cannot trust somebody who is cheating on you. So say it again and use language appropriately. Say, I have so much joy with her. She just cheats on me. I have so much joy with him. He just hits me. He just calls me names. He just makes me do sexual things I don't want to do. But I have so much joy with him. When we use language appropriately, it puts the entire relationship back into focus. Love requires trust and joy. Hey, guess what? When I tell you God is love, For years, I said I loved God and I didn't trust Him. In the DNA fabric of who God is, is somebody you can fully trust and somebody you can have full joy with. God is love. Remorse is also a blended emotion. You want to know how you create the emotion that we call remorse? Or, or, I'm sorry is an easier way to say it. I'm sorry. Remorse is blending together the two primary emotions of sadness and disgust. I was talking to somebody who told me, you don't understand, he had just cheated on his wife. And he said to me, you don't understand. I am so sorry for what I did to her. In fact, I'm writing a letter every single day to tell her how sorry I am. It's just that this other woman was so beautiful. And I said, for you to use a word like beautiful to describe the person that you just left your marriage with, that doesn't sound like somebody who's disgusted with themselves. Maybe you're sad. And so rewrite your 18 letters and say that. Say, I'm so sad for what I did with you and see how that works. Most marriage therapists will tell you you can get through an affair. People don't want to hear that. Most marriage therapists will tell you you can get through an affair if there's remorse. I am so sad and disgusted with myself over what I did. I'm sorry. There's a, oh, wait, hold on when we say to God that we are sorry for our sins. Are you? Or are you sad? Are you disgusted with yourself over the way you've treated your fellow man? Or are you sad? There's a world of difference. When it comes to repentance, what we need is remorse. I can assure you, as Adam left Eden, he was both saddened and disgusted with himself. And so God says, I can forgive you and I can redeem you. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Don't you ever think about coming back here. That's how I read it. Except that's not what the text actually says. The phrase, a flaming sword, is a rather inexact translation of the Hebrew text. This is what I have not been able to wait to share with you and it changes everything. To read this text literally in Hebrew would be to say a glittering sword. Their guarding Eden is not, is what appeared to be the scintillating reflection of light from a sword turned every which way with great rapidity, flashing shafts of light radiating from an intensely brilliant center. We are left with the conclusion that it looked as if the sword appeared to whirl itself in all directions, creating a manifestation of brilliant light. The glittering sword there, guarding Eden, was not the flaming sword of God's wrath. Rather, it was a reminder of the manifestation of God's glory and light that still dwelt there. This is the light that the Hebrews called Shekinah glory, and it told them that God was still present when they worshipped. Every time they looked at Eden, it wasn't the sword of God's wrath. It was the fl- it was the glittering sword of God's power and glory. I'm still here. Emmanuel, God is still with us. Every time they looked, at him, it wasn't God's judgment that they saw. They said, oh my goodness, thank you, God, that you are still with us. It changes the entire story. It changes. I, I need you to hear me. When we worship a God that is angry, we become angry Christians. And people trip over us on their way to the cross. The cross matters. I'm going to show you why in a second. The cross is literally the redemption of the entire story. And I want you to hear my words. It is finished. You don't have to claim your shame anymore. It is finished what is available to you is literally a new life in christ he makes all things new and so i stand at the door and knock is there anyone is there anyone who is willing to open this door for me i'm looking for some easers is there anyone eden was now guarded the tree of life was now guarded by the manifestation of God's glory and light, an eternal promise to them that I'm going back. I'm going back for you in this. The womb of the woman is hope. He, The devil may have struck your heel Adam. I will crush his head. Amen. I will be born a man. And I will redeem you to myself. I will keep the covenant with myself. Every time they turn toward Eden, they see Shekinah glory. It's a beautiful story. And I don't know about you, but I'm going back May we go back to Shekinah glory. May we remember Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going back to Shekinah glory. I'm going back to God with us. I'm going back to Ezer. I'm going back to Chawa where I see death, but I claim life. I'm going back. I'm going to show you something really beautiful. We claim restoration not by something we give God, but by something God gives us. He has never demanded your righteousness. We haven't been righteous people, so that doesn't even make sense. He's not demanding your righteousness. He provides it for you. So when we make mistakes, a righteous man falls down seven times but gets at eight, we just get up. And we say, man, God, I'm so sorry I did it again. And then we keep walking with Jesus Christ, and we say, help make me new. Let me show you something really beautiful. The cross is not just the signature of your redemption. It is literally the tree of life restored. God says to Adam you cannot any longer put forth your hand and eat from the tree of life but I the physical embodiment of life will hang myself to a tree and those who eat of my body will never be hungry again and those who drink of my blood will never be thirsty again this cross on which I the lamb of God is slain will take away the sins of the world this tree on which I hang is is literally the tree of life restored. The Bible is so beautiful, and the symbolism of Scripture is so beautiful, and it's just sitting there in most of our homes just waiting for us to learn. Something I just read this last time through, I think it was in the book of Luke, And it says that before um, Jesus goes to heaven, he spends like 40 days with the apostles preparing them for their mission. And it says, and he helped them comprehend the scriptures. I'd never noticed that before. And now each time, every time before I open my Bible, I say, God, help me to comprehend the scriptures. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. May I comprehend your word. I, the chief of sinners, am. But amen, Jesus died for me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just commission your women. God, I pray that we would give up All the baggage that has clouded our vision of you and has caused us to see you as somebody who is just angry and ready to get us if we make a mistake and somebody that we have to hide and shame from. I pray that each one of us here would just stand before you naked and allow your hands to cover our shame. Lord, I pray that you will truly raise a generation of women to be pillars to hold things up and hear, God, strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands that we can do the work. May you strengthen our hands. May we reclaim the name of Ezer. May we help make this world strong. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.